Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take a Bibles in hand and open once again to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Our text this morning, verses 38 through 42. And here we have an episode that only is recorded by Dr. Luke among the four Gospels. The characters involved are mentioned many times in the other Gospels, but this particular encounter with Jesus is not. This episode was initiated by our Lord's meeting with a woman named Martha in the village of Bethany in the region of Judea in the nation of Israel. Now Luke does not mention that Bethany was the setting, but the other gospel writers locate Martha's home in that village of Bethany, which was a short distance from the holy city of Jerusalem. Luke relates this entire story in only five sentences, but these five sentences tell us much about how to choose what is best and that's the title of the message today, Choosing What is Best. Let's read our text, Luke 10, 38. Now as they were traveling along, that's Jesus and his disciples, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now this text is interesting because as Christians, we think about our choices in life, or we should. And when we do, we often think only in terms of right or wrong. Well, certainly there are many things in this life that demand such clear-cut discernment. If a person even admits that there is such thing as propositional truth or right or wrong, they're somewhat of an outsider in our culture. There was a day not too many decades ago where almost everyone believed at least in the concept of right or wrong, but those days are long gone. So as Christians, we surely hold tightly to the belief that there is right and and there's wrong. So there's nothing wrong with choosing the right. There's everything right with it. But as we'll see this morning, not all decisions are about right and wrong. Many of our decisions every day are a decision between good and best. And that is the case here with the story of Martha. She chose something good, hospitality, over against what her sister Mary chose, which was best, which was fellowship, intimacy, worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have many decisions to make every day, and so we need help. Fortunately, the Lord has given us that help. For example, He's given us His Word, where we find His will revealed. Psalm 18 says, As for God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those who trust in Him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. That is, God cares about our decision-making process. He wants to help us. We also as Christians have the benefit of the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit. 
Jesus, when he was describing the coming of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, said in John 16, 13, that the Holy Spirit will guide you to all truth. And so if you have a difficult decision to make or an easy decision to make, certainly we want to consult the Word of God. And we know when we submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, He will never lead us astray. But as I said, not every choice is a clear case of right and wrong. Martha is an example of someone who chose a good choice, but it was not the best. Let's look at uh, a few points from the text today. Look at verse 38 to begin with. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, that's Jesus, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. This is the propriety of hospitality. Hospitality is a good thing. We don't know much about Martha, except that she had at least two siblings, a sister that is named here in Luke 10, Mary, and a brother mentioned elsewhere named Lazarus. And we know this is the same Lazarus that Jesus caused out of the tomb. Lazarus come forth when he had died. And we know as time went on, Jesus must have become very close friends with three, these three siblings because when he was in the area of Jerusalem, he often stayed in Bethany. This was sort of his base of operations down in the region of Judea. And remember that uh, chapter 10 here in Luke marks the change in Jesus' ministry geographically. In the early days of his ministry, he taught and healed primarily up and around the Sea of Galilee in that region of northern modern day Israel called Galilee. But beginning in chapter 10, he travels south towards Jerusalem into the region of Judea. And this is the location of Bethany and Martha's home. And the fact that Luke refers to this home as Martha's home may mean that she was a widow woman, or it may mean that she was simply the oldest child, which is likely the case considering her behavior. My wife is the eldest of four siblings, and I am the younger of two, and I must say there is some legitimacy in the stereotypes about birth order. <laughs> Likely because the oldest child usually has to take on more of a parental role than the younger. And many of you know that Melissa and I have four children of our own, and our oldest child is 12 years old, and she is severely mentally disabled. And therefore, our second child, Aubrey, who's only 17 months younger than Emma Kate, has become the de facto oldest child. And someone commented to me recently that Aubrey seems to have an old soul. And I agreed, and I, and I told that person that I am often aware that I am the third best parent in our household. <laughs> and Martha was like that. She was a woman of hospitality and of hard work, and, and that is our first point on the outline, the propriety of hospitality. I suspect if there's one most underappreciated biblical imperative in our Western church, it's the command of Christians to show hospitality to strangers. That's a command of Scripture. Did you know that? It is. And, and if you go on mission trips, and by the way, we have three men heading to East Asia this week. You need to pray for them. But I don't worry about Christians in East Asia showing people from Keller, Texas hospitality. They will, if it's like every other mission trip we've ever gone on in every other nation in the world, is that the people oftentimes who have much less income than the people living where we do will do everything under their power to make sure that we're comfortable and are well fed and, and well housed. 
because this is a biblical command to show hospitality. For example, in the book of Hebrews, we are instructed to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, I don't think that's a metaphor. I, I think angels are to be taken as literal in this case, that, that you never know when you're showing hospitality to a stranger, this may be a messenger of God, and he has sent, and we certainly want to show hospitality to God's messengers. Romans 12, Paul gives a listing of the attributes, not of super saints, not of a, a specially high class of Christians, but he says, here's how all Christians ought to behave. He says, we ought to rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, be devoted to prayer. We ought to contribute to the needs of the saints and we ought to practice hospitality. You catch that? Right in the same list as prayer and service, Paul puts hospitality. And so we know it's proper and right for Christians to show hospitality. In fact, we ought to do so with a good attitude. Peter in 1 Peter 4, 9 says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Paul says that uh, we are to tell the truth in love, meaning it matters about our attitude when we're telling the truth. It also matters in how we're doing um, hospitality. It's one thing to grit your teeth and murmur under your breath and cook a meal for someone or allow them into your home or your car. But he says we are to do it without complaint. And the reason we can do it without complaint is because of what Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 35, that when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Meaning, when we show hospitality to a stranger or another Christian, it's as if we're doing it to Christ himself. And we would certainly never complain about ministering to the Lord in such a way. How important is hospitality in the New Testament? Well, these uh, Sunday evenings once a month, I have been meeting with uh, those deacons that you have uh, elected. And we have a new class of about 16 new deacons we'll be ordaining next month, and we're excited about that. But each time we meet together, we review the qualifications of church leaders, primarily from the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Listen to what Timothy says about the qualification of elders, overseers, pastors. He says, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So right wedged between an aptitude to, to teach and being faithful to one's wife is hospitality as a requirement for someone who leads in the church. Titus 1.8 says the same thing. Be hospitable, love what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. It's not just deacons, it's those they serve. When we established our widow ministry here, we based that upon the qualifications of 1 Timothy 5, 9, and 10. A widow is to be put on a list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a good reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers. That is the qualification of one who's to be honored in their old age. So my point is this, Martha was not in sin by showing hospitality to Jesus and the disciples. But her sister Mary was busy with something even more important than hospitality. So don't leave here today saying the pastor said hospitality is not important. Just the opposite. We ought to emphasize it much more than we do, especially in our modern culture. I think we have the notion today that because 
There's hotels everywhere that are relatively inexpensive. There's restaurants and eating establishments everywhere that we no longer have the command or the obligation to show hospitality to one another, and that is certainly not the case. Secondly, we see the posture of humility. Look now at verse 39. Speaking of Martha, she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. Now you'll notice the ing ending of the word sitting. There are a lot of ings that Mary could have, in the opinion of her sister, should have been doing. For example, Martha likely thought that Mary, instead of sitting, should be cooking or washing or preparing or even serving, but instead she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now what was she doing at the feet of Jesus? Well, she was listening. She was worshiping. She was uh, drawing close to the Lord. After all, how many times is uh, Jesus in your living room? And she wasn't about to miss it. This is the posture of humility, not how can I serve you? What can I do for you? She sat down and said, you have everything I need. And this, of course, as we've said many times here, is the posture that leads to salvation, the posture of humility, of poverty of spirit, of, of spiritual need. But here, here's the very practical truth as we think about Martha. Remember, Martha's not in sin here. She's doing something good. She has just not chosen the best thing to do. And I think a lot of us here relate to Martha. It's very hard for us who are uh, accustomed to being in charge of things at work or in the home to just sit around while others serve. If you want to see someone nervous and fidgety, you watch a pastor on his day off try to listen to someone else preach. It's almost impossible to sit still while he's doing what you know you're called to do. It's not that you can't appreciate another person's teaching or, or preaching, it's that you're thinking how I would have interpreted that verse or how I would have illustrated that point. Um, and so we can relate to her. But, but it begs a question for those of us who are, are busy and, and enjoy being in charge of things, who in the world has time to stop and sit and hear the Savior speak and dwell upon the gospel where there's a house full of people to feed? And the answer is everyone who truly wants intimacy with the Savior. I hear people say all the time, I'm just too busy. I can't do that. I'm, I'm just too busy. And, and we have sympathy for that. But the truth is, friends, we all have the same number of minutes in every day. And life is nothing more or less than a series of choices of how we spend those minutes based on what we value. So, so next time... Someone asks you to do something and you say, I'm too busy for that. Substitute the word busy for I don't value that as much as something else. Because that's what it, what it means. And that's okay. We all have to make priorities throughout the day. But that's really what it means. And so here's the problem with overly busy people, which let's be honest, I think most in this room fall into that category these days. Overly busy people often choose what is good rather than what is best. And that's what Martha did here. And that cycle perpetuates itself over and over. We, we have a series of choices. We choose the good, but not the best. We become more busy, 
We continue to choose the good but not the best. And the next thing you know, our life is full of anxiety and worry and we have become a harried person. Not a hairy person, a harried person. There's a very big difference there. And there is a problem with harried people. We find it here in verse 40. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. The problem with harried people is the problem of distraction. The word harried is an old English word for distracted. It originally meant to make war. I found that very interesting when I found that this week. To make war. You know when people get ready to war, they get busy, don't they? They start making uh, equipment. They start sharpening swords. They start uh, counting kegs of gunpowder. They're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. That's an interesting word because the Bible says that as believers we are in a war, aren't we? It's a spiritual war, but we fight it every day. And I have often told you from this pulpit over the years that I believe that Satan's most effective strategy against your pastor has been distraction. Now don't get me wrong, I am certainly as capable as anyone of any sin, probably more so than many of you. But so far, Satan has not been very successful in getting me to waste my life on alcohol or drugs or illicit sex. But I have to admit I struggle every day with distraction. My mind dwelling on things that are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves, they are simply not best. They are unimportant in the bigger scheme of things. And before you know it, you've wasted an hour, and then two, and then an afternoon, and the next thing you know, you've gone an entire day without really concentrating on what is best. And what is best is fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hearing the voice of the Savior. Another problem with harried people is that they are never satisfied being harried alone until everyone else they know is harried as well. You know anybody like that? Here's Martha. She's running around. She's busy. She's frustrated when she sees her sister sitting doing nothing in her mind at the feet of Jesus. And so she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my, I'm sure she's pointing right at her sister, that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone. Tell her to help me. When we're harried and when we are distracted, we sometimes blame the Lord and accuse him of being distant. I don't know how many times people have come to see me about their spiritual walk and say, Pastor, I, I just don't feel as close to the Lord as I used to. There was a day where I was walking close to the Lord and I could just sense His presence all the time, but it's been a long time. And I have those times too. But here's what I know. If I'm not feeling close to the Lord, I know one thing for sure, He hasn't moved. He hasn't, has He? One of the attributes of God is He's immutable. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I don't feel close to the Lord, it can mean that, that I'm wrong because our feelings can fool us sometimes. Or it may mean I've distanced myself from the Lord either through overt sin or 
choosing the good over the best. And that is likely the case. Almost always, it's that. It's filling one's life with things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they aren't best. They are not worship. They are not spending time in the Lord's Word. And here's how I know that to be true. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 is almost always in Baptist churches preached as an evangelistic text. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And then people will say, Here, lost person, the Lord's knocking on your heart. He wants you to let him in, be the Lord of your life. Well, of course it's true that the Lord wants to be the Lord of your life. But you have to understand context. The book of Revelation was not written to lost people. It was written to save people. And he's writing to save people. He's saying Christ wants closeness and intimacy with those he died for. Think of it this way. You're standing in the foyer of your home, three feet from the front door. You're talking on the cell phone to your best friend and you're saying, you know, I just don't feel as close to Jesus as I used to. Just don't feel like I used to. And he's standing three feet away, wanting you to invite him in, wanting you to do away with the busyness of life so that you may settle down and spend time with him so that you can be as close as you possibly could be. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him. That means fellowship, settle down, have a meal with. In the ancient world, when they ate a meal, they weren't in a hurry. It was a production and it went on for several hours. That's what Jesus is saying. I, I wanna take my time and build a relationship with you. And, and so if you're not feeling close to Christ, Jesus has not moved, neither is he hiding. He desires to have fellowship and relationship and closeness with his elect. But sometimes the thing that is keeping us from that closeness again is, is choosing the good rather than the best. Let me give you four examples of how we can choose the good over the best. And, and I took these four from the man in the mirror, okay? Would you agree with me that sleep is a good thing? It is, we need it. God designed us to have to have sleep. And I have a bad habit of staying up too late. And I'll stay up late and then the, the alarm will ring early in the morning and, and I don't wanna get out of bed. And I look over to tell my wife, I don't wanna get out of bed and she's already up. And, and for the 15 years of our marriage, almost every day she beats me out of bed. And usually when I get out of bed, she's already at the kitchen table with her Bible open. And so sleep's a good thing, but it's not as good as spending time with the Lord, is it? And so let me get very personal. It may be that some of us need to set our alarm 15 minutes earlier so that we can get up. And spending time with the Lord in the early morning is a wonderful time to do it. Before the kids get up, before we turn on the TV, before we start our day, something about saying, Lord, this is your day. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I just need to know that you're with me. Opening the Bible, not reading for two hours, but uh, just having a quiet time with the Lord. Starting your day with Him. Another thing that is good that often distracts us is work. Work's a good thing. It was not the result of sin's curse in the garden. Now, 
the difficulty of work was part of sin's curse, but Adam and Eve were given work to do before sin entered the world. And some of us uh, say, well, I can't go to church because I've got to go to work the next day. I've got to rest on Sunday. And I know you're here today, so this can't be you. But there are some people that uh, I'm sympathetic for because they've been moved to a Sunday shift and they really would like to be in church. And I've, I've been there too. But here's what I would say to you if you're struggling with work, taking priority over worship, pray that God would change that situation. He can. It's not a too big a thing for God to move upon your boss to give you another shift that doesn't conflict with public worship. And it's not too big a thing for God to give you a better job, which you don't have to work on Sunday. Pray that way. And if you're praying that way, come see me and I'll pray with you for that. I think that's an important thing. Thirdly, sometimes our decisions don't reflect what we say we value. Remember I said that life is a series of choices how we spend those minutes that we're given every day based on what we value. Sometimes we say we value the things of God. We value church. We, we value fellowship. But sometimes our most important decisions don't reflect that. Let me give you an example. We have, as you saw, so many young people and children, which means we have a lot of parents who are in the child-rearing years. And oftentimes, and this is the painful part of living where we do, you'll have a wonderful young couple in, you'll invest in their life, they'll invest in your life, and then they get transferred to Albuquerque or Denver or Atlanta, and, and they have to leave. And I always say, if you can go to church at First Baptist Keller for three years or more, and it not break your heart to have to leave here, you weren't doing it right. And so we'll have to say farewell to, to these wonderful friends. And almost without exception, these wonderful people who have given their life to, the, to this church, served here in so many ways, they'll say, well, pray that we find another good church home. And then they'll say, but we've already bought a house in Atlanta. And so let, let me ask you this. What if, rather than doing our research and finding the best school district, finding the best neighborhood and finding a house that we like and buying it and moving. And then the next Sunday start our church search to find a good gospel teaching church within a driving distance of that home. Why not do your research and go find a good gospel teaching, Bible preaching church where you can invest your life in and when you find it, join it and then go find a realtor and buy a house close enough that you can drive to it every day. Because the Bible says Christ is our life if we're a Christian. He, he's not a sliver of our life or a component part of our life. He is all of our life. And he says when we do those acts of hospitality to one another, it says we are doing them to him. And so then if you're truly a born again believer, the local church you belong to ought to be the epicenter of your life. Now let me get very, very personal. Sometimes, remember I said that we let good things come in the way of the best thing? And one of the best things in our life is our children. And sometimes we allow our children to be a good choice over the best choice. I see it every day in my neighborhood. Saw it this morning, by the way, on my way to work. I saw parents getting ready to take their children to the soccer field. I saw them getting ready to take their children to the mall or to go see grandmother. All of those are wonderful and good things. 
Don't, don't hear me saying those things are sinful. I'm saying those things aren't nearly the best thing they could be doing for their children. And I know because I have four of my own, 12 and under, we feel the pressure to make sure our children have all the opportunities that the other children have, right? Do you feel that pressure? You don't want your child to, at 30 years old to come to you and go, you didn't give me the opportunities that the Joneses down the street have. And so we have this artificial pressure to keep up with the Joneses, not just in what car we drive and what neighborhood we live in, but all of the extracurriculars that we do. And it leaves us worried and harried, not for sinful things, but because we choose our children. And let me say something that's gonna be hard for some of you to hear. Your child is not the best choice you can make. The Lord is the best choice you can make. And your children learn how to make those choices from you. Well, I have stopped preaching and gone to meddling, haven't I? <laughs> well, let's look finally, fourthly, to the pronouncement of the host. Martha was the host. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from, here, from her. Now, do you notice the gentleness in Jesus' voice? He doesn't harangue her. He doesn't embarrass her in front of her guest. He says that I take in a very quiet voice. Might even hugged her. I can even picture him doing that. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. And when we think about the choices in life, we tend to have a difficult time here in the Western world differentiating between needs and wants. But the truth is our needs are very, very few. Almost everything else falls in the category of a want. Jesus is talking about spiritually now. He distills it down, there's only one thing that is necessary and that is to have a relationship with Jesus. It says Mary has chosen that good thing. He called it the best part, the good part, which means the best choice she could possibly make. And he says, I'm not about to take it away from her. Look at her. She's overwhelmed getting to spend time with me. She's learning so much. She, she feels like she's the only person in the room when I'm talking and I'm not gonna take that away from her. Friends, what I'm laboring to make this point Fellowship, closeness, intimacy with the Savior is always the best choice you can make. It is better than work. It is better than sleep. It's better than running yourself frazzled, absolute to death to keep up with the Joneses. But we need help, don't we, to, to be reminded of that. We need to remind each other of that. Would you covenant with me if you see me doing that? with my family, would you take me aside and say, Pastor, remember what you told us about the best choice? Practice what you preach. You have my permission to do that. And I'm gonna do it for you. Is that okay? I'm gonna do it anyway, so you might as well say it is. <laughs> do that with one another. Do that for one another in your Sunday school classes. That's why we have Sunday school classes is to hold each other to the, uh, accountable to those decisions that we've made. Remind each other by your presence here next Sunday 
that fellowship with one another and intimacy with the Savior is the best decision you can make. Not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. Amen? Let's, let's ask the Lord's help. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. What a pointed word it is. How practical it is. 2,000 years later, Lord, we're still living like Martha. Busy and harried and frazzled and in a hurry. Doing those things that we know are good. But we're not the best. Lord, I thank you for the, your gentleness. Not just with Martha, but with me. How many times? I and the people in this room need to hear this message over and over. Lord, may we be willing and love one another enough to remind each other of this story as long as we have a relationship here on earth. Father, I thank you for Mary. and She is a positive example of one who chose the best over the good. Help us to have that same ambition, Lord. Help us to value closeness with Jesus over everything else in our life. And we know you'll not take that from us when we do. And we pray it now in the Savior's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.